Amen. Well, I wonder if you've ever thought about this verse in particular. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21. You tell me if this is an exaggeration or not. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And those who love it will eat its fruits. Think about that for a moment. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. I recently read someone who kind of paraphrased this and said, your words will bring death or your words will bring life. That's the fruit. It's up to you. It's your choice. I found that a fascinating kind of uh, statement, words, about words. We're in this book of James And this book is called Prove It because it is a book that is written to a number of Christians who are scattered uh, all over a region due to some serious persecution. They're, they're They're Jewish Christians, so they have a Jewish background, so they would have been very aware of many of the Jewish maxims and, and statements like Proverbs. They would have probably known that quite well. They would have understood Solomon would have been one of their heroes of the faith, so to speak, one of the greatest kings who had an incredible start to his life and a brutal finish to his life, but they would have known all this. And so this idea of, of wisdom actually flows throughout this whole book of James. In some ways, it's, a, it's an update of the book of Proverbs to Jewish Christians who are now scattered all across a region. They're Christians, though. They believe that Jesus Christ is the centerpiece of their entire religious belief. They're not simply uh, this, uh, this idea that there is a God. They believe that Jesus Christ is that God. But what's amazing is that this is a bunch of Christians that are facing some serious discouragement because of the persecution that they've faced You can only imagine what kind of persecution when there's really no laws or all laws are against you. Maybe you feel like that today. Maybe you feel like the laws of our country are actually against those who believe in Christianity. I find it amazing that basically every faith seems to have freedom except Christianity in our country. It's amazing. You can say anything you want, regardless of what religion you're from or what you believe, but if somehow you, you say something associated with God, oh, that's, that's, we, we can't have that in our country. It seems a strong resistance in our country to anything that brings up this idea that the Christian God is the one way. I think we can relate a little bit. Throughout this letter so far, what James has actually been doing is he's been talking to these Christians and he's been saying to them, you know, your belief in Jesus Christ is not simply something that's on the inside, it's actually, or on the outside, it's something that's on the inside and moves outward. Something that's deeply affected. Some of us, we we go one way or the other. We have a completely external faith and so we do all the right things and we say all the right things, but inside there's major problems. Or maybe we're on the other spectrum and Outside, we're just a, a, a kind of a bundle of activity that's nothing related to what's on the inside. And James is talking about a faith that's deeply integrated both ways. Deeply changed what's in someone's heart, but also deeply changed how someone acts. And throughout, he's been kind of 
systematically in, 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 in many ways, the longer I'm studying this, the more I realize this is a very well put together letter that's written to these Christians that talks about kind of the order and the way in which this even comes about. But essentially what James is trying to say, if the truth about Jesus Christ is true, there will be ways for you to prove this. That's why we call this series Prove It. He's not saying you need to prove it to God in order for him to accept you. That's not what James is saying. That's the opposite of what the gospel is. The gospel is good news that must be heard and believed, and therefore we have an opportunity to prove it. Faith and works, faith and obedience, faith and action are deeply integrated in this whole letter. And he's kind of systematically going through. He says, you know, there will come trials in your life. Guess what these trials are for? They're not against you. They're here to develop that faith that turns into works. And then he talks about in chapter one, hearing and doing the word. You can't just hear the gospel and not have it have an effect on your life. It, it, you're, you're like a person who looks in the mirror and then completely forgets that their face needs work. And then he talks about sin of partiality, which is a, an issue of wealth and poverty. And he's saying, if you believe that all people are made equal, then why do you treat the rich better than you treat the poor? Something's wrong here. And then last week, we, we looked at uh, chapter 2, verse 14 to 26, that really pressed home this idea of this is the centerpiece of James. This is the, the main teaching of James that everything else comes out of, and that is that faith and action are not ever to be separated. That if you ever say, well, I, that person's a Christian, I just can't really tell by anything they do, there's something wrong with this. You know, if someone said, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a huge Calgary Flames fan, and then they said, well, do you, have, do you go to the games? No, nope, never seen one. Well, do you own any merchandise? No, I hate it. Well, do you know any of the players? I couldn't name one. You would actually go, I don't think you're a Flames fan. This is what James is trying to tell us. That if you say you're a Christian, you say you believe that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and you don't have any knowledge of this and action of this coming out of that, then you need to question how real your faith is. It's a strong word for us, and I believe it's a word to our church in this day and age. But today we're talking about words. Why words, you say? Why would this be so important to James? This is the beginning of a long section in the book of James. Starts in verse uh, 3, verse 1. Actually, it doesn't start in 3, verse 1. It really kind of uh, starts to get solid in 3, 1. But we see pictures of this all throughout the letter thus far. And it really doesn't even end until basically the end of 4. It's two-chapter section almost about words and how important this is. Why words? Why words? Why would words come up? Well, maybe I don't need to tell you this, but I don't know if there's one single thing that can damage a community more than words. You ever been at an awkward family conversation? Someone says something really stupid. I mean, this is what movies are made of. Nowadays, right? These awkward family conversations. I mean, you can list off all of the great movies of all time, and most of them have some weird Thanksgiving meal where everyone sits down and someone says something stupid and damages irreparable damage for the rest of time. I mean, what are sitcoms but basically bad conversations gone bad? 
or good conversations gone bad. I mean, the whole point of the, the serial series Seinfeld was about terrible conversations over and over and over and over again. I mean, there is nothing else to this show but conversation. I don't know if you're putting these pieces together, but I want to begin by saying words are incredibly important to God. That's why. This is incredibly foundational to everything that we believe. Think about this. When God created the world, how does the book of Genesis explain creation comes into existence? Abracadabra? Does he use his arm and go poof? No. The Bible says God speaks creation into existence. God says, let there be light, and there was light. There's no arm movements recorded in this. He could have had his hands in his pockets. Let there be light and there was light. That's the start of the story of God. How does it start going bad? Well, Satan enters the scene. And guess what? The first statement that Satan asks, the first question that Satan asks us, all of humanity is what? Did God really say? Okay? Eve disobeys God's what? Word. That he loved them. That he said, you can eat of anything you want in this garden. There's only one tree that I ask you not to eat of. And her disobedience was related to something that he said. And Adam's response? Eve told me to. You don't think words are important to the story of God? Funny little story about that. We were reading that as a family once. For those of you who don't know, my eight-year-old daughter, actually she turned eight today, so she would just be tickled pink, I guess that's her favorite color, tickled pink if you wished her a happy birthday. She would just love that. Um, she pranced around at seven in the morning this morning on, on the, upstairs, excited about her birthday, and I was reminded as I was thinking about her of the story of Eve. We went through this whole garden story where Eve told Adam to eat the food and and she ate it, or he, she ate it, then he ate it. And so we reviewed with her after she spoke the story. We said, Eve, what did you learn? She said, I learned that I, I told Adam the wrong thing. <laughs> I love that story. But if there's anything that can pull apart a community of believers, it is words. It's not suffering. It's not money problems. It's not addiction problems, it's word problems. If there's anything that can destroy a relationship, a marriage, a friendship, brothers and sisters, family, if there's anything that can really destroy family, isn't it words? You think about whether you have a healthy family or an unhealthy family right now. If you think about that, is it word related? Is it related to something you said or something someone said to someone else or something someone didn't say? Aren't all our father issues as men related to the fact that our fathers didn't tell us the right things? They didn't say, I love you, things like that. It's amazingly, incredibly important. And so this, this morning, what I want to do is I want to take us through this, this issue bit by bit. This whole issue that's titled Taming of the Tongue. And I, I think it's going to show us in this text, it's going to show us the real problem that we have. And then it's actually going to show us the, the power of words. It's 
going to take some time to do this. And then it's actually going to reveal for us the solution. So here, here we're going to go through the problem, the problem of words, the power of words, and the solution that's in our hearts. And so here's the problem. The problem, James says, he begins with this idea of disproportionate damage. Thanks, my brother. Ladies and gentlemen, Wyatt's in the house today. The problem of the tongue, the problem of the tongue. Section starts off with a discussion about teachers and the motivation that people have for getting into a teaching position. You're like, wait, wait, that doesn't sound right. Okay, if you, was that where you would start? Okay, today we're going to have a lecture or some teaching on uh, words. Okay, let's talk about teachers before we get into words. It doesn't seem to make sense except that the whole book of James has been talking about motivation and this word is coming from a teacher. Now let's remember that this is not like our culture. Uh, our culture says those who can't do teach, right? Is that, you heard that before? Yeah, exactly. We have many teachers. I didn't come up with that, Curtis. That's our culture that came up with that, okay? I teach for a living, so I don't think that's the case. But we don't have an incredibly high view of teachers in our culture like they would have. Teachers are kind of middle of the road in our culture. If they're that, you know, much higher is, I don't know, people who can sing, uh, people who can, you know, do really well at karaoke. I mean, that is the high of our culture here. <laughs> you, know, you notice how I feel about reality television from that. But this is not the case. In this particular culture, te teachers are of the highest. They're right on the level with rabbis. Rabbis have an, a really, really influential position. They'd be like the newscasters, the, the famous people. They'd be like Hollywood in this particular culture. And, and why would you, is it possible to get into that kind of, of a position with wrong motivation, right? Have you ever noticed anyone in a powerful position, you're like, I, I don't, I'm not sure about the motivation for that person getting that influential position. Let's reword that. Have you ever longed for a more influential position? You ever just thought, oh, if I could just be in that position, I would just, oh, this is what I would do. If I had this much money, then I'd really, you know, I'd change the world. And this was, this was why people were probably attracted to this idea of teachers. Think about teaching. That is your main tool, your tongue. That is your main tool, your best tool. It's not keynote. It's not PowerPoint. It's words. TED Talks have reminded us that the power of words is still exists. It still really matters if someone stands up for 19 minutes and speaks without any PowerPoint at all. People are changing the world still through words. Do you think that's because TED Talks have kind of stumbled onto something brilliant, or do you think that's because God has always considered spoken word to be incredibly powerful? He wants it that way. He spoke creation to existence. I think he knows one or two things about speaking and the power of this. And so James is right off the bat saying, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. He's not saying don't be a teacher. He's saying be careful of your motivation for becoming a teacher. Because your primary tool will be words. And words, as he goes on to say, words are powerful. 
Words create the biggest problems we have. He says, for we all stumble in many ways. He's including teachers there. I'm, I'm just reading through the text here for us. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. He's, he's talking about this idea that if you want to become a teacher, then you're going to have greater scrutiny placed on you than anywhere else. So you better watch out. You better understand this. Because we all stumble when it comes to speaking. I'm, I'm sure I'm the only one who's ever said, did I, did I say that out loud? I mean, some of you are like, I can remember times where you said things from the stage that I was like, oh, I wouldn't say it that way. Thankfully, a lot of those were the earlier years of urban grace, but some of you have really good memories about this stuff, unfortunately. And it's amazing that you can remember some words that I miss say or that I don't say, or that I have said. And this text is saying, be careful, Trev, when you stand up. Yes, you've got something to say. Yes, there is an influence here that comes with this position, but be careful. He uses a number. I love this about James. He uses a number of uh, word pictures, and I've got some of them uh, for us. Why? If you'll if you'll turn for us. He first of all used, hey, all the horse people in the house, this is for you, right? This is the best picture. Those are the best pictures. There we go. Horse and bridle, next one wide. Ship's rudder, you can just see that the rudder at the very back in, in proportion to the size of the ship. And then the last one, forest fire. I love these word pictures that James uses. And the point that he's doing here is he's saying, the tongue and your words do disproportionate damage. He's kind of sequentially going through these three word pictures that were actually very common in culture at the time. People of all kinds of religions use these three things to explain that the small word used improperly can be very damaging. Just like a tiny bit in a horse's mouth can actually change the whole direction of a very powerful animal. Like if a horse is out of control, you need more than one person to calm him or her down, right? But with a bit in a horse's mouth, you can actually do some decent control of this animal. It's amazing what people have been able to do with horses just by a small piece of metal just in the right place. And then there's a proportion thing here. It's like you could never move a horse physically with this bit. If you put this bit against it, you're like, I'm just going to push this bit against the horse, you'd never be able to move. But you put it in the, bit's mouth, the horse's mouth, it's amazing what the horse will do. Ship is the same way. doesn't matter how large your ship is, the rudder is always smaller. It's actually a really, really small part. I don't know if you've ever seen large ships out of the water or lifted up or being constructed. It's amazing how small that rudder is compared to the enormous size of the ship. Like ships are so big you can't lift them out of the water with a crane. But that rudder is only probably 5 by 10 max. 5 by 10 feet is the biggest rudder you need. It's amazing. What, is those, what do those rudders do? They turn the whole ship, the whole ship around. You could never paddle doing that. This, this is a proportion thing. James is trying to say, look at this small little rudder compared to the size of the ship, how it can just set the course of direction for the ship. 
What else does he say? He says, think about a fire. Now, remember, we're in Canada where wildfire threats are not very high for the most part. Usually, you, you drive by these signs. There's a threat of wildfire today, and they should have a little kind of thermometer gauges. It's non-existent in our culture because it's so cold and wet here, it seems, that it's not very hot for a large portion of our year. But it is amazing. I actually read, of course I did, I read a book this summer on forest fires and forest fighting and how powerful forest fighting or, or forest fires are, how fast they can move. Small spark, lightning, cigarette, match. A careless fire that's burning underground for a long time can set an entire forest on fire. This is what James is trying to say. Small words, enormous impact. Small words, enormous impact. I would say if there's one thing that sets the direction of our entire church, sets the lives in motion of our entire church, what is it? It's the word preached that sets this direction. It's not our organization. You're like, no, it's not. As much as I like our music, it's not our music that sets the direction. It's not our sound quality. It's not even the people that serve faithfully. What is it that sets the whole direction of our entire church? And I would argue that it's starting to set some of the motion of other churches. That's why we're involved in church planting. It's the preached word of God, the gospel going out. The good news simply being preached over and over and over again. This is what James is trying to say. Don't forget this. If you ever want to obtain a greater influence in your life, don't forget the importance of your words. I think of city group leaders, how important their words are. We talk about this gospel family mission. We break this down throughout the week. We meet in communities, smaller communities, family communities. What's the primary tool we use there for city group leaders? Besides your home, it's your words. I always say, what's most important to me as a leader is that you know the gospel and know how to explain it. In every situation, what's not required is 18 years of Bible college. And what James is actually saying then is, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. And the tongue is a fire, like a forest fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Wow. That's a powerful word, isn't it? Your tongue is set on fire by the gates of hell. I don't know if you've ever had to apologize for a word. I've never done that. And I'm not going to. I'm kidding. I don't know if you've ever felt and received a damaging word from someone. No matter what your age, I am sure there is a particular word that someone screamed at you or said to you meanly that you will never forget. 
Conversely, there's also been words that have been spoken to you that have changed your life. Someone spoke a word of encouragement. You're good at this. I remember a word of rebuke to one of my friends in this church. He keeps bringing it up over and over again. Those words changed the direction of my life. They were hard to hear, but they were necessary for me to hear, and they changed how I think about the Christian life and about discipleship. I had no idea at the time that my words would have that sort of effect. I was trying to stay awake on a long road trip, and they helped set the course of direction in someone's life. I can remember something my older brother said to me that he will never remember. He told me I was lazy. You know I still battle those words? You know that? I still wake up going, today do I have to prove to my older brother that I am no longer lazy and I will work harder. It's amazing how my motivation to work hard is not always from my Savior who died for me and worked hard for me, but as a battle against the lies of my brother. I asked him about it. I said, do you remember saying this? He's like, no. What's more, I don't even think that anymore. Anymore, he added. <laughs> but he can't imagine. He's like, I don't think of you as lazy in any way. I think of you as hardworking. And I was like, why am I battling this in my head? Because this is how powerful words are. That's why. Some of you have arrived this morning and you're battling some words that were even spoken this morning. You're battling a lie that you keep hearing. The serpent keeps repeating the same question to you. Did God really say that he loves you? Did God really say you're accepted, not on the basis of what you do, but on the basis of what he has done? Did Jesus really die for your sins? Are your sins really forgiven? Did God really say this? I can guarantee you this is the sermon that the serpent will keep preaching at you because he knows how powerful words are. Which is why we say, come back every week not to show up and be an attender, but to hear God's word to you. Do you want to know how much I love you? Do you want to know if your sins are forgiven? Look at the cross. He is risen. He has accomplished everything that he needed to accomplish. Those words there are very important to us. They mean that there is nothing left for Jesus Christ to accomplish through his life or death changes the whole direction of our church. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. So we're talking about the power. The power, and it's going to be really negative at the start because it, it's going to end well for us, okay? So hang in there. I want to talk about this small thing that has incredible influence, but I want to talk about some of the actual things that perhaps need some examining in your life. Maybe you haven't been watching your words very closely, and so I want to remind you of all the different ways that your words can possibly be used inappropriately and the power that this has to change and damage our community. I was thinking about this. How many of these sins are word-related? A lot of them. There's slander. Slander is incredibly damaging to a community, to a person, to an individual. You can take someone to court over slander. 
You can sue them for things they say wrongly about you. What is slander? Making false statements about someone, usually behind their back, deliberately trying to smear someone's reputation. They're words designed to go after a person's reputation that aren't true. They're not just lies, they're specific lies. To go after character and reputation. Slander is known to be rampant and to travel like wildfire amongst churches. I don't know if you knew this. See, even that phrase that we use, did you hear that word picture there? Slander travels like wildfire. So does gossip, which has never been a problem in our church. I'm being facetious here. It's a problem in every church. But we don't talk about it, do we? We don't talk about the damage that this is. We talk about, oh, we just don't have enough space. That's our real problem. I don't know about that. I think things like gossip can really eat at our community. They eat at families, city groups. This is talking about the details of someone's life, whether or not those details are true. doesn't really matter for the most part. In fact, we kind of prefer that they're not true. Especially when we're not particular, personally or particularly involved in a situation. I'm not talking about the conversations you have with people like, what do I do about the situation? I'm having this situation. I'm trying to figure this out. And you're actually actively engaged. That's not what I'm describing here as gossip. Some of, some of us are afraid to talk at all about anyone else. The Bible doesn't require that. It says, what are you using the conversation for, to make yourself look better or to figure the situation out? Gossip is just talking about other people when they're not there particularly using details that may or may not be true, which you don't really care about, and you're not actively involved. Gossip is incredibly damaging to our community. Incredibly. It travels like wildfire. I don't know. I started a fire in our backyard. I do have a pit. I do have a pit, right? It didn't start a real fire. It wasn't going well. It was all this rain. So I was like, I know what I'll do. I'll take my chainsaw mixed oil and I'll pour it all over my fire and see what happens. And all I did, all I did was put a little light and just went like eight feet high. This is what gossip does in a community. Tiny little flame. Bam. I mean, if I was not absolutely and completely ready for that, I'm probably not preaching with eyebrows today. But because I'm a master fire starter, I escaped. <laughs> Boasting, what's this? Talking about your particular skills with excessive pride or arrogance. See what I just did there? You laughed because it was boastful. I mean, I'm kind of poking fun at myself, but you're kind of like, if you don't know me really well, you'd be like, man, that guy really thinks a lot of himself and his fire-starting abilities. Now, do you have particular skills or gifts? Yes. What's boasting? Talking excessively about them. Especially with a sense of pride as if you are this person because of what you have done. If you're a disciple or a follower of Jesus Christ, you actually know full well that everything you have is a gift from God. So there really is no reason to boast. 
You tell someone you're, you're gifted in this area, it should be tested out with humility. That's exactly how the Bible tells us to approach our gifts and our service. To approach with humility is in the community is needed to support this and be behind this, but not with excessive pride. I don't know about you, but there's few things I can spot from a further distance than excessive pride. You ever notice that about yourself? You're brilliant at seeing pride in someone else, and when it comes to you, the mirror is really foggy. It's one of the things that drives me crazy about sports. Especially on a game like football where you take 12 people who all have to do their job, or 11 if you like American football, who all have to do their job. Everyone has to do it right, and there's one person who takes credit for it all. Drives me crazy. Point at themselves. Point at the name on their back. If there's one sport in the world that requires everyone else doing their job to get you ahead, it would be the game of football. It's excessive pride. It's damaging to a church. Lying. Okay, there it is, lying. Did you know that that's a commandment? Do not lie. Do not bear false witness. Do not say one thing and think another. Deliberately and intentionally not telling the truth or speaking something that is untrue. How about this? Abuse. Using derogatory words in the presence of someone intended to harm feelings. See the power here? Starting to understand how important this is for James to go, hey, if you guys really say that Jesus has completely changed your life, then you have to take a really careful inventory of the things that you say. Because there's the flip side of this. How is a church built? Well, Ephesians tells us first there are apostles and prophets and evangelists. And pastors, teachers. You know how word-based those gifts are? Prophet speaks God's word into existence both in the present and the future. Evangelist preaches the gospel. Apostle starts speaking in an area that's not really existing work has happened in terms of gospel. Pastors and teachers, shepherds, people who speak the God, word of God, prophets who say the word of God over and over again, preach the gospel. Are you hearing this? How can we use words rightly? Well, we can encourage. I don't know about you, but is there anything more encouraging than someone telling you that you belong to this community? I mean, those words bring life, don't they? You think that's just a metaphor? Or do you think God wants our words to bring life? Man, there is nothing like a well-timed word in my week to help me. I don't think there's anything more that I appreciate more in this entire church than hearing, I appreciate what you've done for our church community. I mean, this, this gives me life for the week. It gives me hope. That something's happening when I feel like nothing's happening. I mean, it's, it's an amazing thing. I, 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 sometimes I just show up a little bit early on Sunday mornings just to thank people. I'm really thankful you're here. It goes a long way, doesn't it? Just hearing, like, I appreciate what you do. Prayer. This is why we gather for prayer on Sunday mornings and we pray in a group, not as individuals. 
We don't just care about prayer. If we did, we'd say, well, you go there, you go there, and pray to yourself. It's just you and God. No, we pray in a group. Why? Because we want to hear what God is doing. Something encouraging about that. Teaching. And some of you have been deeply changed by just the teaching of the gospel week in and week out. That your life is different because you heard something on Sunday morning that affected all of your week. Preaching. You just feel the power of God sometimes when someone preaches. It's like God himself is speaking. Why do you think that is? Do you think it's just because God says, I I like good preachers? Or do you think there's something that he wants to connect and say, there is something powerful and instrumental with the words? And they can use, be used terribly. Well, there's a problem and the power. So all of us are discouraged, aren't we? We're like, ugh. What do I do? What do I do? Well, first of all, I want you to realize that your problem and power doesn't come from just you being bad with words. It comes from a bad heart. Now, this is one of the amazing things that Jesus does is he doesn't, he doesn't connect our words to special gifting. He connects our words to our heart. A disciple of Christ recognizes that not only, not only do our mouths have a problem, but our hearts have a problem. Our hearts have a problem. And Jesus was actually used his words very specifically. He began his ministry by preaching. Repent and believe. Turn from your way, believe my way is essentially the layman's terms. And there were a bunch of people that, that they didn't care about what they said or they, didn't, they cared in the wrong way. They didn't say certain things because they were afraid God's wrath would be poured out on them. And so they just found convenient ways to avoid actually obeying God and loving God through what they said. You've met this person, haven't you? You you are this person, perhaps. You're just like, if you just couch it right, you can kind of craft even the way you say things to get what you want. And there were a bunch of people that said, we follow God. And Jesus was like, yeah, it sounds like you do. But if I pulled back and looked at your heart, all I'd see is that you're a brood of vipers. You're like a dog pound full of snakes. It's the kind way that Jesus says it. You brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you're evil? How can you think that it's just about what you say and not about what's inside your heart. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person, out of his good treasure, brings forth good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. Does that sound like a seeker-sensitive service to you? Sounds like Jesus means business. Sounds like this is really a, a real issue. And so here's the response. Something has to change. Something has to change. 
But actually, it's not your mouth, it's your heart. It's not your mouth, it's your heart. The last couple of verses say this. For from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring for, pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Word pictures. I love these. We're not familiar with those kind of trees, but we're familiar with the image of a tree that shouldn't produce particular fruit. What James is trying to say is, don't you realize that if you want good words, your heart needs to change? Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? If you have a salt water spring, you can't go further down the line and try to make it fresh water. It doesn't work that way. I grew up on a farm, and in the old, we called it the old yard. It was the original farmyard. And they had a well. And that water tasted like it had been in a cement container for 3,000 years. There was something about it that was hard. I was like, I was thirsty, and I was, I, was, I can't drink that water. It didn't matter how long I ran the tap, friends. I could run it and 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 run it. And I did. I was like, maybe it's just in the first little half of this well. I'll just run it for two hours and then I'll finally get some good water. And then I'd lean down and, oh, it still tasted like cement. So what, so what James is saying, you, you got to dig another well is what he's saying. Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? He's like, can you go up to a fig tree and over time get olives? It's not how it works. What if you take all the figs off and you staple olives to the tree? What then? Do you get olives off the olive tree? Well, technically, yes, for a season. But you put those olives and you just staple them to the fig tree. I know we're laughing about it, but this is why James is trying to say it this way. What do you need if you want to get olives? You need an olive tree. What do you need if you want to get figs? You need a fig tree. What do you need if you want to purify your words? You need Jesus to change your heart. You need Jesus to change your heart. And this is why if you're brand new to Urban Grace and you say, I am here just to receive some moral imperative teaching that can help me move along, this is the point where you have to make a decision. You have to say, if you are just here just to staple olives on a fig tree, I'm afraid you'll be very disappointed. And it's only going to last as long as those olives stay looking healthy. But if you want your words to be purified, if you want your words to change, then what's going to have to happen? You're going to have to open up your heart and ask Jesus to change and redeem everything in your heart. We used to pray this with our children. Not that they would have a better day, but that God would give them a new heart. It's exactly the Bible story over and over and over and over again. 
In fact, way back, one of the prophets, one of the preachers, one of the speakers of the Word of God said, one day I'm going to send my spirit out and here's what my spirit is going to do. He's going to change hearts of stone and make them hearts of flesh. The image there is is another word picture for us. He's saying, I'm going to radically not just change what comes out, I'm going to change what's actually inside. So this morning, what I'm not recommending is that you leave here stapling olives to your your grapevine. Stapling figs to your olive tree. Trying to gather a few grapes and stick them to you as if somehow you can change a few of the things you say. Oh sure, you can probably do that for a season, but it's not lasting real change at all. And this is where the gospel is so different from every other religion. Jesus says, if you want to actually change what comes out, you need to change what's inside. There's only one way to do that. If you allow me, he says, to take over your life. If you give everything in your heart, soul, and mind to me and ask me to radically transform it and take it and redeem it and do something with it. And so there's a response here for us. And we're going to move into taking some time to respond well after every message because we think this is important to think about. We think there's something here to take some time and you need some time to process this and, and be asking in yourself, so what, what is it? How do I respond to this this morning? I'm going to give you two ways, at least two ways. Two ways to respond. You can make it right and you can make a change. Some of you, you've had your heart changed by Jesus, but you've reverted back to the old method of stapling grapes to the olive tree. And you need to make things right with someone. You've said a word out of season. You've said a really wise word in the wrong season. You ever done that? Said something that's totally true, just bad timing. It's a disaster when that happens. It's frustrating, especially on the receiving end. The Bible actually says as you come and, and, and th- this happened in this particular culture, they would celebrate the Lord's table, the Eucharist, the, the, the Last Supper together. And, and, and the Bible says some of you, before you partake of the death of Jesus, you need to have an old death. You need to go through a death yourself. You need to have a death to your pride. And you need to ask forgiveness. You need to make a right. You need to say, I was in the wrong. I shouldn't have said that. I didn't mean to hurt you. Or I did and I'm sorry. So there's action involved here. And some of you just need to make a change, period. You've never really invited Jesus into your life to do this and say, there's a lot of things that I've given up to Jesus, but I have not given my tongue to Jesus. And the reality is, becoming a Christian, being a Christian means that your tongue belongs to him and not to you. It means that what you say is now under his direction of his spirit, not under your direction in your spirit. And you simply need to open your heart up and ask for your heart to be open and say, Jesus, make a change in my life. I need you to radically transform my life. And why can you do that? Why can you do that? It's because Jesus never, ever 
underestimated his word to you. He never once said, I'll just say a bunch of things and then hopefully some of it will land. He had specific reasons for saying everything that he did. And the most important things that he ever said to us were, you are my sons and my daughters if you love me. If you trust me through belief, you will be my sons and daughters. Nothing you do or say can ever remove you from my love for you. I have paid the price for all of your sin, all of your guilt, all of the wrong things you've said. And because Jesus has said that to us, we can now have our hearts changed. And so let's just take some time, as I call Tim up, take some time to respond. Take the time you need to take. Usually we're hoping that the first song is a little bit slower just to allow some time to think. But here's what I want to ask. What's your response? Is there something that today you need to make right with someone else? Remember, this is on the heels of the passage of faith and works, that your faith in Jesus will require action. So some of you are like, I can't ask forgiveness right here today because that person's not here. I say, then make a plan, friends. Repentance is not simply asking for forgiveness. It's asking for forgiveness and making a plan to change. So ask Jesus for help with that plan. And some of you just need to make a change. You need to open your life. You need to trust in Jesus for the first time. You need to allow him to be in control of your heart so that he can be in control of your tongue.